I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 40, which along with Psalm 54 are the psalms appointed for today, Friday, October the 29th, 2021. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look in the book of Nehemiah with chapter 2, the first 20 verses, and uh, Revelation 6, 12 through 7, chapter 7, verse 4, and then in Matthew's Gospel, continuing in the 13th chapter, the 24th through the 30th verses. We have a lot of ground to cover in the Nehemiah uh, passage and the the main thing is is that what we've got is uh, the need of a leader and the importance of a leader and what does he bring to the table. So it's leadership is important. Leader, leadership is always important. We can overstate the need of leadership and we can overstate the place of leadership and the importance of leadership in the church. Yet the reality is without leadership, the church won't continue and it'll fail. Um, we need to, to be aware of what it means to be a leader. And Nehemiah here in the second chapter shows us very clearly what it looks like to be a leader among the people. So he has been given uh, the freedom by the king of Persia to go and go back to uh, Jerusalem and build up the city and the temple. And so in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. Now, what's the problem with being sad? Well, the problem with being sad is, is that, that it looks like treachery if you're sad in the presence of the king because you should rejoice because you're in the presence of a king, right? So that's the issue. He has never been sad in the presence of the king because that would cause the king some alarm and concern about the trustworthiness of the man who stands between him and potentially being poisoned. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Because if the king doesn't believe Nehemiah's story about why he's sad, then he could be put to death or fired at the very least for failing to rejoice at being in the, in the king's presence and not being delighted and happy. And he says, look, I know you're not sick, so that's not the excuse. So what's going on here? Why are you sad in the heart? He said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. This is not about you. This is, this is not what this is about. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and this is all happening in real time, right? And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? That had to have been the most happy words <laughs> Nehemiah could have ever heard, because how long will you be gone, and when will you return? is his way of saying, yeah, sure, absolutely, you can do that. 
Uh, so he knew, you know, he didn't say how long would it take and, and when would you come back? You know, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Because he comes through these other provinces before he gets to Judah. And so what he needs is, is letters of transit. Um, which would be, if, if you know the uh, reference there, that's from Casablanca. He needs letters of transit that allow him to pass through that area and go on into Judah from where he is. And if he has letters from the king stating that he's able to do that, then, then he gets safe passage all the way there. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. So he's giving grants from the the king's forest in order that he can have the timber that he needs to do the construction. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then, so he's already leaving, I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So he's not traveling alone. He has an escort going with him. And some of this sounds similar to when Joseph takes Jacob's body out of Egypt, in that that when the king sends people with him as an escort to take him out. And, And part of that is for his safety, but the other part would have been to announce that this is a royal official who has come to this place. So not only did he have the the letters of transit that that allowed him to have safe passage. He also had protection along the way, officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So they're against it. They don't want to see this rebuilt. Their, Their lives haven't been better for Jerusalem having been there before. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And we can assume here that the the men who were with him as he goes out to make this tour of inspection that we're going to read about here in a second, that were probably the officers of the army and the horsemen who had been mentioned previously. So they would have come from Persia. They were probably not men of Judah. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. He went out by the valley gate into the valley and then around the entire perimeter of the wall, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And so he does what a good leader will do when he comes to a new work, and that is he inspects things and sees with his own eyes the reality of things on the ground. And so he sees how awful the situation is. He doesn't need to go back and and, and drum up false support. No, he begins with his own inspection, and he begins from a place of reality. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let's build the wall of Jerusalem. We may no longer suffer derision. 
And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to us, to me. And they said, let's rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So, so he, they knew that he had come, that he had everything that he needed to lead this, and he had all the, the uh, material at his disposal in order to complete the work. Now he just needed to lead these people to get the vision to get this work done. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he he doesn't defend himself by saying, No, I have the king's warrant to do this. It's not their business. He's not going to allow himself to be distracted from the work that he's been given to do by these naysayers along the way. And and that's the thing, more than anything else almost, but his planning is one of those things. But his ability to deal with distractions is one of the great things in Nehemiah's uh, leadership, I believe. He, he, he allows himself only to focus on the one thing that he is there to do, and he knows that he has two things. He has the support of the king and the support of the king of kings. And so because of those two things, he knows that he will succeed in this work. And so he stays single-minded in his focus all along and never allows these distractions to keep him from the work that he's been given to do. It's the same with Jesus. He didn't allow distractions to keep him from being about that work. He answered the questions and objections and then kept moving. In the gospel today, Jesus is speaking. Remember yesterday he had... uh, explicated, I guess, the parable of the sower and the seed. And so here now, again, he goes and speaks to the people, and he puts another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. What they've sown is a false wheat, in essence. It's going to grow up and it's going to look like wheat all along so that it's be very difficult and very tedious to go into the field and try and separate the wheat from the weeds or the tares is a better way of saying it. It, it, it looks very much like wheat, but it's not going to produce the grain at the end of the, at the time for harvest. And so to do anything about it now... It's just going to be counterproductive because you might pull up wheat with the tares. And so that's the reason that that he says an enemy has done this. It's somebody who wants to make my life more difficult than it has to be. But he's not going to let the enemy win, right? So he's not going to let the enemy uh, set the terms of engagement here. So he says, nope. Uh, They said, do you want us to go gather them? the tares. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let's both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And he's talking obviously here about an enemy being Satan, sending someone into the midst of the community and, and, and sowing things that look like uh, Christians and looks like the gospel but it's, you've got to wait until this stuff is fully grown. And so Jesus is not going to allow the enemy to set the agenda for the work. 
he says, ignore these things. It's by their fruit you will know them. It's That's the simple part of this parable, is when this stuff doesn't produce fruit, then you can pull it up. You can pull that up at that time and then go gather the wheat. It's going to take a little bit longer, but you're not setting the agenda for today. I'm going to keep single-minded on what I do, and when it comes time to deal with it, then I'll deal with it then. And sometimes that's, as leaders, sometimes that's the hardest thing in the church to do is keep focused on the work that you've been given to do because there's so many other distractions that will come along and people will, will want this to be important or that to be important and know, stay about the work. Stay about the work that we've been given to do. And it's the same in every aspect of our lives. We're going to be far more productive if we stay about the things that we're doing. I was talking to my friend Steve Green today, and he was telling me that that there was a time when there were certain metrics they had at the gym at that time. And those metrics were very focused on sales kind of metrics. And so he said, so we focused everything on sales metrics, and we hit them all the time and never missed them. And that's the thing is, is that what we need always is to have that kind of focus and to stay focused on the one thing thing that we consider to be measurable or that somebody else to be considers to be measurable. And so what we need to do is focus on producing fruit in our lives, through our lives in every single way that we live. And the Revelation thing, now we've opened the first five seals, remember, and so now he opens the sixth seal, and I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I mean, this is the destruction of creation. This is one of those things that as Christians should, should not just alarm us but break our hearts, that what's happening here is God's, God's destroying his own good creation to get the, the uh, attention of humanity. He's more concerned that maybe some of these people will repent because they'll see the awesome and mighty works of God and the judgment of God and that they will turn to him. But he's willing to destroy the creation in order to do it. Again, we're seeing that, that humans are at the pinnacle of God's creation, and he's willing to give everything for us. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Come out, come out wherever you are. I mean, you, it, it's, that's, the mountains and the hills are not going to protect you from God's judgment. Do you know what can? It is repentance. <laughs> it's turning to him and allowing the blood of Christ to atone for the sins that have caused this judgment to be real in your life. So, but, but rather than repent, rather than turn to him, rather than acknowledge him, Instead, no, they're, they're calling on the mountains and the rocks to fall and hide them from the face of the one who, is, who they fear. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Silence, in so many ways, would have been there. And so, can you imagine a world bereft of breeze, bereft of any sort of movement of the air. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun 
so in the east, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Those are the 12 tribes. So I don't think that's a literal number. I don't think it's 12,000 per tribe. I believe that it's a perfect biblical number because it's 12 twelves and a myriad. So I think that it's clear that this is not a literal number that have to be sealed because I'm positive way more than 144,000 Jews have converted along the way. And so, but, but it, there's a protection that God's going to give these who are num- the servants of God are going to be protected from this harm in order that they can be seen who they are. And, and then the judgment of the earth or the sea and the trees can happen. Bef- before this, it's mostly only the, the, the heavenlies are where the problems are. Besides this earthquake, everything else is a problem in the heavenlies. So if you look into the sky, then you see the judgment beginning there, which is exactly how creation happened. And so we see this reversal of creation in the destruction of creation, but we see that it's held in abeyance so that men might repent and so that God's elect might be sealed. If we keep the main thing the main thing, we won't have to worry about a single bit of this. God's got it taken care of, and we'll know that we are in that number.